Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Coming up on the show today, Joshua Green, author of the new book, The Rebels, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and the struggle for a new American politics. Uh, Josh, welcome to Bookstack. Thanks so much for having me. So congratulations uh, on the new book. And why are these three famous politicians the rebels? I tell the story in the book about the rise of left-wing populism uh, in the years since the financial crisis. I've been a Washington reporter for a long time. And to me, the, the significant political event in American politics in my adult lifetime was the 2008 financial crisis, which gave rise to uh, a brand of, of right-wing backlash populism on the right, uh, which was the subject of my last book on Steve Bannon and Donald Trump. But it also uh, uh, led to the emergence of this distinct strain of left-wing populism that was represented by my three figures. And so I wanted to write about that history, uh, how it had shaped the Democratic Party in, in, in the United States of America in the years since then. Yeah, I mean, you described that uh, 2008 uh, financial crisis as a moment when America broke down. Yeah, that's right. I was at the time I was a, a political writer for the Atlantic Monthly magazine, and I was embedded with Tim Geithner, um, Barack Obama's Treasury Secretary, was on the front lines of dealing with the financial crisis. But I also wrote uh, a column on the side for the Boston Globe. And so I had gotten to know Elizabeth Warren who at the time was a Harvard professor who had just been put in charge of, she was the, uh, they called her the bailout oversight cop. She was one of the overseers of what was called the Troubled Asset Relief Program, which was essentially the big Wall Street bailout that uh, Obama instituted once he became president. And so I had this kind of odd split screen view of during the day, I was with this very pro Wall Street Democrat who was, who was trying to engineer a recovery by filling the banks with with money in an effort to recapitalize. And then in the evening, I would go have coffee with Warren and listen to her tell me all the reasons why that was the wrong thing to do and that the focus needed to be on, on workers in, in the middle class. And so to me, I was sort of present at the creation of this of this rupture in the party. And I watched and reported over over the subsequent, you know, 10, 15 years as Warren grew into this um, really not just important political figure in the Democratic Party, but really cultural figure who gave rise to what at the time was, was known as kind of the Elizabeth Warren wing of the Democratic Party. But eventually she passed that baton, as I do in, in the narrative, uh, to Bernie Sanders and later to, to AOC, who came to uh, represent the same uh, strain of left-wing populism that I think has been so important in shaping the party and, and in shaping Joe Biden's presidency. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's fascinating that uh, split screen view as you describe it, because, you know, in some ways, um, the reaction to the 2008 crisis, even the transition, the way in which the, uh, the Bush uh, administration and the incoming Obama administration work together, there's the, uh, those uh, transition memos that, that were published recently by, uh, by Steve Hadley and others, uh, is almost seen as a masterclass in how a crisis like this should be handled. And yet, on the other hand, you have this this way of interpreting this, which, uh, to quote you, shows elected leaders weren't looking out for ordinary people. So it's it's actually quite difficult to get your arms around what we should make of this uh, of this crisis. We're talking about the 2008 crisis. As I said, I was embedded with Geithner, who had a very clear theory, veteran of Wall Street, even though he never worked in the banks, he'd worked at the New York Federal Reserve. 
Uh, he'd spent years in the U.S. Treasury battling global financial crises, and he had a very clear idea of what he wanted to do. To Geithner, uh, the most important thing that Obama had to achieve was to make sure that the banks didn't collapse, but to do it in a way that cost as little as possible for U.S. taxpayers. Geithner and I think Obama thought that they would be judged on the size of the price tag for the subsequent recovery effort. Uh, and so what wound up happening is that the recovery focused on those banks in particular, recapitalizing those banks from, from a strict dollars and cents uh, taxpayer cost standpoint, the plan wound up working wonderfully. Uh, the, the U.S. spent much less uh, taxpayer money on that financial crisis. They did get a lot of this money back from banks in the end. But I think the problem is that Geithner and a lot of the more Wall Street-focused members of the Democratic Party were blind to the political backlash that would ensue if they were to give seven, eight hundred million dollars to Wall Street banks and not do anything to help uh, ordinary middle class people who were suffering through the crisis, whether it was because of a job loss or because they couldn't pay their mortgage or because their retirement account had crashed. And you could see almost immediately, I could as a reporter, um, on the ground, the way this was playing out. And on the right, you, you had the rise of the Tea Party. Uh, on the left, there was the Occupy Wall Street movement. And what both of these things had in common is they were a backlash to the government's response to the crisis, both the Bush administration, which was in power when the economy crashed, uh, and the Obama administration, which was in charge of the recovery. Uh, within a few years, you could see the political emergence of these strains, you know, on the right, it led to Donald Trump and his presidency. But on the left, it led to, to, to my group of characters who created this emergent strain of, of left populism um, that's reshaped the Democratic Party in a lot of the same ways that the Republican Party was reshaped by Trump and the populace on the right. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because the political context around that time, in some ways, the Obama administration gets caught right in the middle because you've got exactly those uh, pressures that you're talking about with things like Occupy Wall Street that at one stage you talk about, you know, there's a shattering of democratic ideals about the common good and so on. On the other side, you've got all the deficit hawks, people like Paul Ryan uh, in Congress who are saying the kind of things like, we can't allow this to get out of control. So it, it, it really does feel like a completely different political age, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it really does. And I mean, different political age, even inside the Democratic Party. I mean, what was so striking to me at the time in 09 uh, was that I was I was constantly sort of exposed to these two sides because I was I was reporting with Geithner and I was reporting with Warren. But you can watch that split emerge in the subsequent years. And, you know, the Obama administration was largely staffed by Democrats who had a very pro-market view of, of how Democratic politics all look. These, these weren't evil people in hock to Wall Street. They just believed that uh, liberal goals, social goals were best achieved by a very market-friendly uh, view. And so they took a hands-off approach to regulatory policy that eventually led to the crash in 08 and 09. But after the crash, when they were putting together the recovery, there weren't yet voices like Warren and Bernie Sanders uh, pushing populist ideas from the left. And so the recovery wound up focused on these Wall Street banks in a way that I think Warren, Sanders, AOC, and a lot of other people would say neglected the interests of the middle class. 
Uh, and in politics, you really can't do that and get away with it for very long, or there's going to be a backlash. And to me, you know, the the, the interesting story in the modern history of the Democratic Party uh, is how that backlash led to to Warren, who at first was just a Harvard professor, but was elected to the U.S. Senate in 2012, was thought to be uh, a presidential candidate in 2016. There was a big draft Warren effort that I write about in the book. Uh, and then when she didn't run, that movement sort of shifted over to Bernie Sanders, who wound up doing far better than anybody would have imagined, raising hundreds of millions of dollars from small donors, winning 23 states, almost knocking off Hillary Clinton, which seemed impossible, you know, at the outset of that race. And then when Clinton lost to Trump with his brand of economic populism, I think that there was a, a broad scale realization among Democrats of all stripe that, wow, we have missed something here. It's, it's the kinds of things that Bernie Sanders is talking about. And so as a party, we need to adjust in a new direction that takes that into account. And I think you'd see that um, in, in some ways in Joe Biden's presidency, how this movement has shifted the Democratic Party to the left, certainly on issues like economics and the environment, uh, in a way that's reflected in Biden's presidency. It does make you realize that, you know, parties really are coalitions made up of, you know, widely differing political philosophies. Uh, you quote AOC at one point saying that, you know, in any other country, uh, she, and by extension, your other two, wouldn't even be in the same party as uh, Joe Biden and, and, and Barack Obama. Exactly right. And, and Ocasio-Cortez is such a shrewd, um, interesting political figure. You know, what she was saying essentially was, look, I identify as a democratic socialist. Joe Biden uh, historically was known as uh, the most pro-corporate Democrat, because he represented the state of Delaware, where a lot of U.S. corporations are based. Uh, when I first came to Washington as a political reporter uh, in 1998, Biden was known jokingly as the senator from corporate America. So, you know, what AOC was saying, look, it's, it's crazy that the two of us are in the same party, but because of, of, of America's unique uh, political setup, there really are, only are um, two major political parties, and, and therefore they have to get along. Uh, I think Biden himself, though, is a fascinating measuring stick of just how much the Democratic Party has changed and just how much of an influence, more, I think, than is generally appreciated, politicians like Warren Sanders and AOC have had on Joe Biden. My narrative in, in, in The Rebels is bookended by two great financial crises, uh, both of which saw Joe Biden in the White House in, in the 2008 crash. Uh, you know, he's Obama's vice president. And of course, after the COVID crash, which was even deeper in 2020, he was president. And you can see in the response and in the nature of the government's response just how much it changed. The 08 crisis, as we talked about, very focused on Wall Street banks, not so much on the middle class. Whereas uh, three, four years ago, you had multiple rounds of stimulus directed at the middle class. Wall Street banks didn't get very much, but there were hundreds of millions of dollars in small business loans student debt forgiveness, eviction moratoriums, all the sorts of things that were neglected uh, in 2008, 2009. I think Democrats, and to be fair, Trump too, learned a lesson from that crisis, which is that you cannot neglect the middle class. If you want to survive politically, the focus of your efforts has to be there. And at least in terms of the economics, uh, I think we're, we're seeing the payoff today. You know, We're a few years past the crisis in the United States, Unemployment is at levels we haven't seen since the Eisenhower administration. Uh, the stock market is at record levels. Certainly was some inflation that's been politically damaging for Joe Biden, but that's now falling pretty rapidly. 
uh, and we're heading into an election year with an economy I think most incumbent presidents would be happy to have. And and that's one of the truly fascinating uh, elements of this book. I mean, uh, first of all, on Joe Biden, it does strike me as you were talking there that in some ways he's gone back to the 1980s version of Joe Biden when he was running for president in 88, which was more populist, more perhaps more blue collar in, in the kind of things that he was espousing. And he adapted in the in the 90s to, in, along the kind of Clintonian uh, model. But What's really surprising is how much synergy there is, and you've discussed this in your previous book, between Donald Trump and the characters that you're looking at. And in many ways, his response to the pandemic was, to a large degree, the kind of thing that perhaps a President Bernie Sanders would have been doing. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up because I get a lot of resistance to the idea, especially from liberal Democrats, when I say, as I do in the book, that there really are overlaps between Donald Trump and my three characters. And what I mean by that is that really on, on, on populist economics, pe people forget this now. You know, I was embedded with Steve Bannon and Donald Trump during Trump's campaign in 15 and 16. And we, we tend to look back on that and remember it as just being this long rant against immigrants and Muslims and that sort of thing. But what it actually was in real time, about half of Trump's antipathy was directed at, at, at Wall Street, at, uh, at the establishment that had Trump claim, you know, screwed the middle class, that there was a secret cabal of bankers who were, you know, Trump's last ad before the election uh, had the CEO of Goldman Sachs. It had Janet Yellen from the Federal Reserve. I forget who the third one was. But it was a pure uh, economic populist anti-Wall Street ad. Now, Trump dropped that as soon as he became president, didn't, didn't lift a finger to do anything populist and, in fact, cut taxes for rich people. But you know, some of the things that he instituted as president, the China tariffs, uh, are things that people like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders have been pushing and that Joe Biden adopted and didn't overturn once he became president. So there's a sort of overlap on, on some economic issues. If you look at where Bernie Sanders did well in the 2016 Democratic primaries, it tended to be in places in the industrial Midwest where Trump was also very popular. And I would very frequently run into Trump voters whose second choice was Bernie, Bernie voters whose second choice was Trump. And it was because of the kind of anti-Wall Street, anti-establishment economic concerns that both candidates spoke to. And I think Joe Biden has gone a long way toward adopting as president. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's always struck me as one of the fascinating things about Joe Biden and, and perhaps explains a lot of his success in running in 2020, that th this overlap that you're talking about, you see it in foreign policy. We've had other authors on discussing that on the podcast, and now here we are looking at economics. And again, it's, it's very easy to see how historians in 10, 20 years time are going to be able to look at the, uh, the continuities in policy between these two administrations. I think it is interesting. I mean, I, I do uh, a stretch in the book on um, what economists call the China shock, the, the effect of open trade on middle America. And if you look at Trump's victory in 2016, it was heavily driven by states such as Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, that, that have these sort of decaying industrial economies. Trump did very well there. Biden was able to win back all three of those states in 2020. He wouldn't have been president if he hadn't been able to do that. I think part of that owed to his persona, which you mentioned he's cultivated since the 1980s, 
of Scranton Joe. He's from Scranton, Pennsylvania. You know, it talks a lot about how his dad carried a lunch bucket and was a working class blue collar guy. Um, but what's even more interesting to me is that as president, Biden ha has backed up that talk with action. And if you look at the hundreds of billions of dollars in, in stimulus and infrastructure bills that he's passed, a lot of that is directed at these states. And it's in uh, reshoring manufacturing jobs and building new facilities, usually uh, battery facilities or electric uh, vehicle factories in these sorts of places. I visited a few of them from the books, traveled through steel towns in Pennsylvania uh, to talk to people. And I, th I think one of the interesting things will be economically, we're beginning to see the effects as some of the jobs are returning to these places, but it's happening very slowly. The real, the real payoff isn't going to be for a few years. Um, so one of the things that I'm going to be looking for in November this year in the presidential election is will voters in these places credit Joe Biden? You know, they elected him in 2020. Will they, will they credit him for what he's done in 2024 or will they revert back to Donald Trump's version of culturally uh, inflected right-wing populism? I think in a lot of ways, that's going to be the story of the 2024 election. One of the the interesting things as well that I mean that that notion about uh, public sentiment, you know, a lot of the book, the early part of the book, really is an indictment uh, of the '90s in particular and the the early part of the 21st century. But you know, I was struck when I was reading it that most people, when they look back, they think of this as as being broadly a, a happy time when the you know there the weren't perhaps the same culture wars that there was record employment. Um, there was record home ownership, that that was being spread among uh, communities that perhaps traditionally wouldn't have shared in that. Whereas, you know, the sentiment now seems to be very down. A lot of people think that America is on the wrong path. So, you know, how, how does that square the circle that if we're going in a direction that is, you know, closer to what people actually want, why aren't they happier about it? I mean, the economy of the 90s, you know, and I, t I talk about uh, sort of the modern history of the Democratic book. I, I open up in 1978 in Jimmy Carter's White House, of all places, uh, because in, in, in my narrative, that's when Wall Street first got its claws uh, into the Democratic Party. And also one of the things I always think is forgotten about that Carter administration is that that's, that's where deregulation on things like open skies actually begins. It, it's before the Reagan administration. Exactly. Yeah. And that kind of deregulatory zeal, that kind of pro-market uh, laissez-faire brand uh, of democratic governance hadn't really existed before Carter, but it really took off in the wake of his loss because Ronald Reagan was president. He was very popular. Democrats panicked after Carter's loss and wanted to move in a different, more pro-business direction, which they thought would be appealing to voters. Um, by the time Bill Clinton got elected as a third-way Democrat in 1992, you know he he was viewed as as kind of a, a pro-business guy who could appeal to you know professional class that hadn't hadn't necessarily voted Democratic before. Uh, and what you saw in his administration was a real move to deregulate finance in, in particular. Clinton, of course, o oversaw Glass Steagall. His administration was 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 staffed with a lot of of Wall Street veterans, literally Wall Street uh, veterans, CEOs uh, like Robert Rubin, his main economic advisor, and that kind of deregulation really did lead to uh, positive growth in the economy that a lot of people associated uh, with happier times. the The problem was it was built on a foundation that wasn't sustainable. 
you know, all these things like subprime mortgages, which seemed like miracles, which helped working class people, minorities uh, get houses, get mortgages that they hadn't been able to in the past. Uh, but it was sort of a sugar high. And the tremendous crash uh, of the global economy that we saw in 2008, uh, I think, reflected the fact that that wasn't real, it wasn't sustainable. And the long period of austerity that followed, I think, was the shaping force in our modern politics, both on the left, both on the right. One reason I think why people are so unhappy was that it created this deep distrust and anger toward the political establishment and the financial establishments in both parties, which Donald Trump was able to capture, which Bernie Sanders was able to capture, and I don't think has ever fully gone away. I think that the inflation that we've seen in the last few years uh, sort of lumped into that anger and that 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 sense among ordinary people that you know my needs aren't being attended to. I've got to pay more at the grocery store. I'm unhappy about this, and so I think you see that reflected in the low poll numbers, not just for for Donald Trump but for Joe Biden. Um, what's interesting to me and what I'll be watching throughout the rest of these years is, you know, I, I work my day job is at Bloomberg Businessweek, so I'm sort of inundated with financial numbers all day. And wow, do the financial numbers look good. You know, inflation is now coming down. Uh, it's below 3%. Consumer sentiment numbers are beginning to turn around. Uh, we've talked about the low employment, the record stock market numbers. Economically, things are going really well. Um, but it's clear from political polls right now that, that most Americans don't yet feel this, or if they do, they don't trust it and they don't credit Joe Biden for it. Um, Biden is fortunate, I think, that, that he doesn't have to face re-election for almost a year. And it'll be interesting to see in that time, do uh, his political numbers begin to improve as a result of a lot of the policies he put into, he put into practice as president, which are really the ones that my characters and their wing of the party has kind of foisted on uh, formerly pro-corporate Democrats like Joe Biden, uh, if Biden is reelected, I think it's going to be a real validation for these characters and for these policies. But if he loses, I think we're going to be in a situation much like Democrats were after 1980 when Jimmy Carter lost. There will be a lot of recrimination uh, and a lot of fighting and debating uh, on, on what is the right way forward for the Democratic Party. Yeah, and it's it's interesting as well because I mean you t you talk about recriminations. Uh, one of the nice things about this book is that you spend a lot of time talking about the history and structures, but you also spend a lot of time talking about these three individuals, and and it's very very striking. I don't think I'd quite taken on board the level of personal bitterness that there is between uh, Sanders and Warren. And, I mean, we saw some of it in the the twenty twenty. Um, uh, presidential uh, elections when they were both running to be Democratic nominee. But this really is personal, this stuff, isn't it? Oh, yeah, it really is. I mean, Warren, you know, Warren is the first character. And in, in 2014, there were these draft movements to get a run for, for president because she was seen as sort of the singular politician that could could kind of represent this movement. But when she decided not to run, you know, Bernie Sanders took the baton and became even more successful and even more popular uh, than Warren had been. And so when you get to 2020, both of these characters think, well, I am, you know, the, the, the mantle carrier for, for this version of left populism and each wanted the other to defer. And they had a, a meeting that I talk about a little bit in the book early on where, where Warren served Bernie lasagna and they're trying to figure out, you know, well, look, I think I should run and you should, you should sit out. And he said, no, I think I should run and you should sit out. Obviously they could come to no agreement. 
Uh, they were they were sort of bitter about it. Their staffs are very bitter about it. They both end up running and, of course, cannibalizing each other's support, which opened the door for Joe Biden to be uh, the Democratic nominee. Uh, but there was a lot of anger and a lot of vitriol. And we saw it explode on the debate stage where Warren, you know, turns to Bernie and says, you said that a woman could never be elected president. And Bernie says, no, I didn't. You know, and you, you, can, you can kind of see the, the tension, which had always existed behind the scene, never really made it out into the, the, the public discourse suddenly, you know, explode. And that's that's one of the stories that made the 2020 Democratic primaries so fascinating was at it, it, the outset of those primaries, Warren was leading the field and all of the talk in the race was about a billionaire's wealth tax uh, and about big structural change. And then Warren sort of declined and you know, Bernie was the guy for a while. And uh, then, you know, all, all of a sudden, I think Americans or Democrats kind of woke up and sort of paused and said, wait a minute, we love this guy. You know, we love these soak the rich policies he's talking about. But the real thing we want is to get Donald Trump out of the White House. And really, within a period of two or three weeks, you see all these Democrats coalesce around Joe Biden and all of a sudden, you know, Bernie sinks. But I think to Biden's credit, he recognized uh, what was positive in the message that Bernie, Warren and AOC were all talking about. What you traditionally see in American politics, I've covered five or six presidential cycles now, is after the nominee wraps up the nomination, he, he what we call pivots to the center to kind of try and broaden his appeal. Biden was, was probably the most you know right wing Democrat in the field in 2020. He did the opposite. He, he pivoted to the left because he knew he had to attract these these Bernie Sanders voters, these Elizabeth Warren voters, uh, and he managed to do that without losing his appeal to the broad center, you know, the, the kind of blue collar appeal we talked about earlier and was able to assemble just enough of a coalition to defeat Donald Trump in 2020. You know, the question going into this fall is, will he be able to kind of keep that together? Are these progressive populists still behind him? The, the three in my book are, you know, Warren, uh, Sanders and AOC, who, who turns 35 uh, in October, which is how old you have to be to run for president. Any or all three of them could have challenged Biden in the 2024 Democratic primaries and decided not to, I think partly because um, they didn't want to disrupt the party and, and allow Trump a chance to win. But I think also and mainly because they recognized that Biden was somebody they could work through and who was instituting a lot of the policies they'd run on. And if you're a serious politician, that's really what you care about, that your policies are being enacted, not so much uh, that you're sitting in the Oval Office yourself. Yeah, I mean, and and that phrase, uh, serious politician, is an interesting one in this context because in the the latter part of the book, definitely is that that sense of the education of a politician that you know AOC emerges as a a, a, a kind of very sophisticated, obviously charismatic, but but a kind of a player that she recognizes that yes, you can have the moral purity of the outsider. But that politics means getting your hands dirty. You can't float above the mess forever. Uh, you say you have to compromise. And she shows that she's able to do that. Do you think that given that you know, there will be a new uh, Democratic representative running at the next election after this one? I mean, how serious, how serious do you think that she is as a potential leader of the party? I, I think she's very serious. I mean, what's interesting about all three of the characters, but but AOC more than one, is that they all began as outsiders, as activist outsiders, radicals, really. And all of them were, were faced with a dilemma. You know, do I maintain this kind of activist purity or do I use the political capital 
that I've raised to actually accomplish things in Washington. All three made the choice to accomplish things in Washington, but I think AOC had further to travel than anybody else did. You know, she came in as an activist who occupied the speaker's office, Nancy Pelosi's office with the Sunrise Movement before she was even sworn in. I can tell you as a Washington reporter, we had never seen anything like this before. Um, but she didn't wind up getting much done in the first six months because kind of attacking your your colleagues that way, while it's it's great for for amassing activist energy, doesn't actually get anything done in Washington. Uh, and AOC, very much to her credit, I think, recognized that and adapted, uh, got rid of some of her more radical staffers and has managed to use her skills both in oversight hearings to create these kind of viral moments that get people's attention focused on the issues she wants. Uh, on using her social media platform uh, to organize younger Democrats on environmental issues and pressure Joe Biden, which she did successfully. But I think that she's kind of reached a point where even people that I talked to in the Democratic Party who didn't like her uh, when she first came in, other congressmen and senators, now recognize and respect that she's a very serious figure that knows what she's doing, that's willing to work through her colleagues to achieve those, uh, and that they have a lot of respect for her. And I think that Ocasio-Cortez has the combination of kind of political know-how, uh, but also media and social media savvy to, if she decides to, in 2028, run as a presidential candidate uh, in the Bernie Sanders mold, somebody who would probably be a factional candidate who represented the left, but in, in, in the course of running, w- would probably pull people in her direction. Uh, but I think the other perhaps more likely avenue for these populist energies to manifest themselves in democratic politics post-Biden uh, would be to, to see a, a redux of kind of what Biden was. Politician who had a kind of a broader, more traditional appeal, uh, who, who adopted these left-wing economic populist policies and put them into practice. I could see someone like uh, Gretchen Whitmer, uh, the governor of Michigan, um, Josh Shapiro, the governor of Pennsylvania, Roy Cooper, the governor of of North Carolina, or someone like Raphael Warnock, who's the Democratic senator from Georgia. Any one of these people, uh, I think, could adopt these economic policies and marry both the broader appeal that they already have uh, with the specific appeal that these progressive policies have to a lot of voters and really succeed in the way that Joe Biden has, particularly if Joe Biden is able to win re-election in the fall and really validate the idea that you know these ideas not only work economically in turning the economy around and helping middle-class people, people in industrial areas, but also are electorally viable in a way that will allow even a geriatric old guy who, let's face it, isn't exuding charisma these days, uh, win a second term as a Democratic president. And and finally, Josh, I'm not going to ask you who you think uh, is going to win in November, but clearly this is going to be a, a fascinating election. What's the element that you're most looking forward to about covering the campaign? Kind of geeky, authorial way. What I'm looking to see is, do does the economic turnaround that Joe Biden has engineered, uh, based largely on, on instituting the ideas that my characters wrote about, does that wind up having a persuasive political effect? Right now, we're not seeing that reflected very much in Joe Biden's poll numbers. You know, but 10 months is a long time. I'll be looking to see, does this turn things around for Biden in a way that allows him to win a second term? 
because if it does, I think it causes a, a sea change in what Democrats stand for moving forward. I think that basically the left-wing populist movement that I've written about will have won uh, if, if Joe Biden wins, because people, Democrats in the future are going to understand that these are tools that will allow Democratic politicians to succeed. Essentially, you can have a much more activist government on behalf of the middle class, on behalf of environmental causes, the Democrats of a prior generation would have thought possible uh, or appropriate. But the flip side of that coin, I think, is that if Biden loses, uh, it's going to be really hard to see the path forward for these populists. I think what you'll see instead is a civil war in the Democratic Party between those on the left who say, well, you didn't go far enough. You know, you hedged your bets. You were too hawkish on Israel or whatever it was versus, you know, the mainstream of the Democratic parties would probably at that point look at Joe Biden and say, listen, he made a mistake in in spending too much and in instituting too many of these politics that caused inflation and many couldn't get elected. I think that Biden's policies at that point will be viewed more as Jimmy Carter was viewed in 1980 as an example of what not to do. And, and, and a politician that, that ambitious Democrats in the future need to define themselves against. And I think that in that situation, we'll see the kind of civil war in the party that we really did in the 80s and 90s when Bill Clinton and the new Democrats were emerging in opposition to the older Democrats. So that's what I'll be watching through throughout the course of 2024. So the book is The Rebels. It's written by my guest, Joshua Green, and published by Penguin Press. But for now, Josh, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed it. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Laura Silverman, and this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. 